0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, we're going to be talking today about the end of the world. Um, The question always comes up. I mean, this is a subject that, you know, is always at the forefront, you know, about the end of the world. Is the world going to end someday? You know, that question, people want to know that. I think the great majority of people, both Christians and non-Christians, think the world's going to end. I mean, it's a theme of books and movies and predictions. I mean, there's a book coming out every year that's predicting it's going to happen this year, that year, you know, and they, they just keep coming. You remember John Hagee and all the big hoopla that he put up and he he knew the end of this coming, you know, and he, we haven't heard much from him since it came, you know. But we're constantly told that the world's going to get worse and worse until God destroys it. Is that idea that the world is going to end taught in the Scriptures? Now, I'm sure that many people would say it is, but does it really teach that? Well, in our text for this morning, in Hebrews 1, 10-14, it seems to teach that the world's going to end. Let's look at that text. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens, they're the work of your hands. They, the heavens, will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, that sounds to me like a prediction of the end of the world. I mean, don't you think it does? Doesn't that sound like the end of the world? Well, I think we need to take a deeper look at these verses and see if they really are predicting the end of the world. Now, we talk about this a lot, but you have to, you can't just take these verses and say, here's what these verses say. You've got to use context context of the chapter, context of the book, context of the scriptures. So let's start by backing up in this chapter to set the context. Verses 4 through 14, the writer shows us that Yeshua, God's son, is better than angels. Now he does this because angels were supremely exalted in the Jewish mind. The Mosaic law had been mediated by angels. And the Jewish people revered and esteemed angels higher than any other created being. So if the writer is to show that Yeshua is better, he's a better mediator with a better covenant, he needs to prove that Yeshua is better than angels. Now, the theme of this section is stated in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, Yeshua is superior to angels. He lays that out. Then in verse 5-13, through He gives us seven quotations from the Tanakh which prove the supremacy of the Lord Yeshua. Verse 14 then gives us a closing argument. So that's what this chapter is all about. Now this passage clearly shows that Yeshua is the prophesied Messiah. He's God's kingly son. And it states or implies the deity of the Messiah. Seven times he quotes the Tanakh to defend his position. Now for our study this morning, I just want to focus on the last two quotations. The quote that we look at in Hebrews 1.10-12 comes from Psalm 102. So let's look at the psalm. It says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Now notice here the comparison. Okay, They, the heavens are going to perish. Speaking of Christ, Christ remains they wear out like a garment, the heavens. You are the same, your years have no end. So we making a comparison here between Christ who is everlasting, who is permanent, and the heavens that are temporary. So this quotation speaks of the permanence, the unchangeableness of Messiah. Now remember, this section is dealing with Yeshua's superiority over angels. So how does this text Show Christ's superiority over angels. What do angels have to do with creation of the world? Nothing. They don't have anything to do with it. Other than Jeff said they were there. They witnessed it. They didn't have anything to do with it, alright? The creation of the world is accredited to Yeshua. Angels were simply part of what He created. So why talk about creation here? Remember, again, you've got to keep this in context. Why is he talking about creation when his argument is he's superior to angels? Well, the simple answer is maybe he's not. Maybe he's not talking about creation here. I mean, it sounds like that. But I'd say this text is not talking about creation or the end of the world. Now, I know that's easy to say. Can we demonstrate that? Well, I think I can. Uh, let's p- look at Hebrews 1.10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, this could be talking about the Genesis account. I mean, God did create the heavens and the earth. We see that in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the Greek word used here in Hebrews 1.10 the words you use don't really help us in understanding the meaning of heaven and earth. They're just very general words. But the word here for beginning is RK, which simply means a commencement. It doesn't have to mean the beginning of time, but simply means the beginning of a thing under discussion. In this case, it's the beginning of the heavens and the earth. Now, you're probably thinking, well, the beginnings of heaven and earth, that was the beginning of time. Maybe, but maybe not could this possibly be referring to a different heaven and earth than the physical creation of the world? That's a question we have to ask. You know, are we just automatically to think, well, the heaven and earth here is the physical creation, that's what he's talking about. That's where most people would go with this. But is it possible that it means something else? Is that even a possibility? Well, I think it's a strong possibility. And again, we'll see this by looking at the context and looking at the use of heaven and earth in Scripture and see if they have other meanings besides a literal, physical heaven and earth. If you want to know what a term means in the New Testament in relation to prophecy or just any term that they use, you've got to go back to the Tanakh to see how it was used there. How did they use this term because the New Testament writers were all Hebrews. They were dependent on the Tanakh. They used it, so they're not going to come up with different meanings. The problem is, so many of us, we come to the scripture and we want to start in the last quarter of the book. We skip the first three quarters. We start the last, start the New Testament, and we just make up our own ideas to what words mean. Because we think we understand them. But we don't understand them in light of the way the Hebrews understand them. And that's what's really important. We've got to get our understanding of heaven and earth from the Tanakh. Deuteronomy 31:30 says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. All right, so what's happening here in Deuteronomy? Yahweh is speaking to Israel through Moses. And here's what he says: Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So here, he calls Israel, O heavens and earth. And he's not speaking to the physical heavens or the physical earth. The context here is Israel. See, when the Hebrews used the idea of heavens and earth, they didn't always have in mind the physical universe. In Jewish literature, the temple was a portal connecting heaven and earth the Jewish temple. They called it the navel of the earth. They called it the gateway to heaven because the Holy of Holies in the temple was considered heaven. That's where God dwelt. So in the temple, in the tabernacle, we have a picture of heaven and earth right there. We'll see that as we go along here. In biblical apocalyptic language, heaven and earth can refer to governments, can refer to rulers, and earth can refer to the nations or people. This can be seen in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 1 and 2. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So again, he, he's calling out to the heavens and earth and He's speaking to Judah and Jerusalem, but He calls them heaven and earth. Look at verse 10, Isaiah 1. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Who's He talking to here? He's still talking to Judah. He's still talking to Israel. Rulers and the people in verse 2, He uses here, and the same as He uses in verse 1 and 2 of heaven and earth. Heaven's for rulers, earth's for the people. So the terms heaven and earth can be used to speak of rulers and people of a nation. Now we need to keep that in our memory banks, All right, He's calling Israel. Now listen, when He says this, when He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah have long been gone. All right, he's speaking to the leaders of Israel, rulers, people, heavens, earth. Got to get that connection. Hang on to that. So it's possible that the expression heaven and earth has meanings other than a literal, physical heaven and earth. For example, the first century Jews referred to the temple system as heaven and earth. According to Josephus, he says, two parts of the tabernacle were approachable to all people because they considered that earth and it was approachable to all people. But he says, but one was not. He explains that in doing, Moses signifies the earth and the seas since these two are accessible to all, but the third portion is reserved for God alone because heaven is inaccessible to men. So the Holy of Holies, which was inaccessible to men, represented heaven, the rest, the earth. Now, John Lightfoot he was a highly respected author of a four-volume series, a commentary of the New Testament from the Talmud in Hebraica. He observed how heaven and earth is used in the New Testament. He says this, "...the passing away of heaven and earth is the destruction of Jerusalem and the whole Jewish state as if the whole frame of this world were to be dissolved." So he's saying when it talks about the destruction of heaven and earth, It's referring to Jerusalem, but it's referring to it as as if the whole world was destroyed. And here's the reason why. Because it's addressed to the Jews. And if Jerusalem is destroyed, guess what? Your world's gone. Your whole world's just collapsed. Right? So, it is possible, I think, that the expression heaven and earth has or may have meanings other than the literal, physical heaven and earth. Now, to further clarify this, let's look at uh, Isaiah 51. I, I am the one who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten Yahweh, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth and you fear continually all the day. So he says, I'm Yahweh, I'm the one, the maker. I stretched out the heavens and I laid the foundation of the earth. Now verse 13 goes on to say, because of the wrath of the oppressor, When he sets himself to destroy, and where is the wrath of the oppressor? All right, let's go back to the beginning of 13 there. God is talking here to Israel. He's talking to them about the creation. Is he talking about the creation of the physical world here? Well, you know, you're not really sure because it could be, but maybe it's not. Verse 13 here sounds like the creation of the physical world, but when you look at it in a literal translation, Like Young's, you get a different idea. Here's what Young says. And thou dost forget Jehovah thy Maker, who is stretching out the heavens and founding the earth. Now you get what he's saying here? It's a present tense. He is stretching out the heavens. God is saying to Israel, I'm stretching out the heavens, I'm founding the earth. Is he talking about physical creation here? Is that still going on? No, it's not. Drop down to verse 14 through 16. He who bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am Yahweh your God, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. You've got to pay attention to what he's saying here. He is talking about a time of planting the heavens. He's talking about laying the foundation of the earth. He says, I established the heavens. I laid the foundation. When did this happen? Well, it happened when he stirred up the sea, it says. The King James says when he divided the sea, and gave the law. Here it says, put your words, put My words in your mouth and said to Zion, you are My people. What do those terms speak of? When did God divide the sea and put His words in their mouth? He did that at Sinai. When He gave them the law, He, he made Israel His people. Listen, He's creating this people of His own and He says, I established the heavens and I laid the foundation of the earth at that time when I gave you My law. This is as Israel's becoming a nation. He's not talking about physical creation here. He's talking about the creation of Israel. Very important. So the term heaven and earth is used in Scripture of something other than physical creation. It's used to speak of the nation Israel. We've got to understand that. Now, another thing we really need to understand here is the theme of the book of Hebrews, because this is all part of the context. The theme of Hebrews is the superiority of the new covenant over the old. That's the theme. Superior of the new covenant over the old. This letter is written to encourage the suffering Christians to persevere in spite of the tribulation they were experiencing. And first, the writer stresses that Yeshua is better in every way compared to the old covenant system. All right? Second, he says the New Covenant is better in every way compared to the Old Covenant. Third, he says the faith of the New Covenant is better in every way compared to the faith of the Old Covenant. He seriously tried to demonstrate to these struggling Christians that the new age that was dawning would bring to completion a new and much better covenant. Now look back with me at verse 2 of Hebrews 1. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Now, when the writer of Hebrews says, through whom also He created the world, he's not talking about the creation of the universe. The word worlds here is not the word cosmos. It is Ion. And that world is a bad translation for Ion. It should be ages. Through whom He created the ages. His discussion here involves Old and New Covenant ages, not the world as we think of it. See, in these two ages, Old Covenant, New Covenant, that are contrasted throughout the book, that's what he's talking about. That's the contrast of the whole book of Hebrews. And he consistently shows how the New Covenant is superior to the Old. With all this in mind, the writer of Hebrews in this section, in 10 through 12, is showing how the old covenant, which was mediated by angels, is temporary. But the new covenant, which Christ brings, is permanent, thus showing Christ's superiority over the angels. Now let's move to the next couple of verses and see if we can hopefully make this even clearer. He says, They will perish, speaking of the heavens, but you remain. They'll wear out like a garment, like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end. Now, he is saying that the heaven and the earth will perish, but Christ is going to remain. Now, does he mean that the physical heavens and earth will perish? Well, no, I don't think he's talking about that. Peter talked about this same idea. A lot of people use 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of the which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will be melted as they burn. Now, is Peter talking about a time when the earth will be destroyed by fire? Well, that's how most people will interpret this. A time when the whole earth's going to explode and life as we know it will end. I mean, it does sound like that. Again, if you're not familiar with the language. But is the world going to someday come to an end? I know the majority of people think of that. We've already talked about that. Both Christians and non-Christians think, yes, the world's going to end. But what about all the Bible verses that seem to tell us that the world's not going to end? That it's going to go on. Genesis 8:21 through22. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in His heart, "I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I ever strike down every living thing as I have done." So God is saying here, "I will never again this is after the flood. He just destroyed everything. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that again. All right? He says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, a lot of people look at this verse and they say, Well, God is promising not to destroy the earth again by water. The next time, He's going to destroy it by fire. Is that really what He's saying here? Is there somehow some comfort in the fact that God says, I won't drown you, I'll fry you. Oh good, I'm glad we don't have to drown. How is that comforting? He's promising not to destroy it again. That's the promise. Not next time I'll burn you up. That's not what He's saying. Look at Psalm 148, 4-6. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh. For He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, it shall not pass away. God, it says He established them forever and ever, and He made a decree. What decree did God make concerning the establishment of the heaven and earth that won't pass away? Well, I think He's probably talking about Genesis 8.21. God said that He would never again destroy every living thing as He has done. And I think He can be trusted. I think He keeps His word, so we don't have to worry about that. Look at Psalm 78, 69. He built His sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which He has founded forever. So He's founded the earth forever. If He established it forever, it's not going to end. Psalm 119, 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Ecclesiastes 1, 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, it sure sounds to me like these verses are teaching that the earth is going to last forever. They're not going to end. But what about the verses that we're looking at in Hebrews that seem to say it's going to perish? Well, again, what we have to do is do a little hermeneutics here. What is the primary rule of hermeneutics? What's it called? All right, the analogy of faith. Or what that means is Scripture interprets Scripture. And that means that no Scripture can be taken in such a way as it renders it it puts itself in conflict with the Scripture somewhere else. So the Bible can't teach the world's going to end and teach the world's not going to end. Right? And it doesn't. The Bible, listen, this is so important. The Bible talks about the end of an age, never the end of the world. The verses that speak about destruction of heaven and earth are speaking about the end of the world, not the end of the world, but the end of the old covenant world, the end of Judaism, the end of the old covenant. That's what's going to end. And again, this is just understanding the language. Uh, Let's see if Scripture can bear this out. Remember we said in biblical apocalyptic language, heavens refers to government and rulers, earth refers to nations and peoples. Now this idea is seen more clearly as we look at other passages where mention is made of the destruction of a state and its government using language that seems to set forth the end of the world as the collapse of heaven and earth. Isaiah, if you go to Isaiah, and you read through Isaiah, you'll see that the heavens and earth collapse a whole bunch of times. If it's physical, they got the whole world collapsing, and I don't know how it comes back into being to get collapsed again, But just watch some of this language, okay? The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. All right, this chapter is talking about what? Babylon. It's an oracle. The oracle here, the word is Massah, it means an utterance chiefly of doom. It's a pronunciation of doom against Babylon. But you gotta keep that in mind as you read, okay? It doesn't change part way down. This is about Babylon. So this introduction sets the stage for the subject matter in this chapter. And if we forget this, then we can start interpreting chapter 13 just about any way our imagination will let us. This is not an oracle against the universe. This is not an oracle against the world. This is an oracle against Babylon. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. All right, keep that in you. This is a destruction from the Almighty. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So here we have this idea of the sun and the moon going out. You know, the same kind of idea that we see in the New Testament about this destruction. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than the gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. <clears throat> Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, and the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. So, he's gonna, the heavens are going to tremble. The earth is going to be shaken out of its place. Now remember, it's speaking about Babylon. This is a destruction that comes from to Babylon. It sounds like a worldwide destruction. The terminology used here makes it sound that way. But the terminology of a context can't be expanded beyond the scope of the subject under discussion. He's talking about Babylon. He's not changing his mind going to the world. This language can't go outside of Babylon. If you were a Babylonian and Babylon was destroyed, guess what? Your heavens have crumbled Your earth is shaken out of its place. Let me put it this way. If America was destroyed, would it seem like the world ended? To us, it would end. You say, well, those other people, we don't care about them. We're dying. It's the end of our world. Our world is over. And that's what's going on here. Your world would have ended. Look at verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver And do not delight in gold. Now, what's interesting here, this is a historical event that took place in 539 BC when the Medes destroyed Babylon and the Babylonian world came to an end. All right, so the Medes are coming in, they're wiping out the Babylonians, their world's coming to an end. This destruction is said in verse 6 remember, I told you to mark that from the Almighty. Right? And the Medes are the ones actually doing it. God is using the Medes to accomplish this task. The physical heaven and earth were still intact, but for Babylon, they had collapsed. This is apocalyptic language. This is the way the Bible discusses the fall of a nation, it's figurative language. Now, in Isaiah 24 through 27, we see the invasion of Israel by King Nebuchadnezzar. I think you're all familiar with that. He carries them away into captivity. Notice the language that's used. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes. You notice the language, earth and world. Withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws. Notice, earth, earth, earth. He keeps saying that. Watch through the context. "...violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth." Again, he's talking here about Israel. "...and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt, therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left." The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man." What I want you to see in these verses is God refers to Israel here, that's the context, as the earth. The earth is destroyed. It's being broken apart. It's being shaken. It staggers like a drunken. Notice how many times He calls Israel the earth. Again, it's apocalyptic language because their world is coming apart. In Isaiah 34, we have the destruction of the fall of Edom. Again, so we have Babylon, we have Israel, we have Edom, all using the same language. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. The skies shall roll up like a scroll. That sound familiar? All the hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now here we have a description of the fall of Edom, but notice the language. This is biblical language to describe the fall of a nation. It should be clear that it's not to be taken literally. God says, my sword has drunk its fill in heaven. And then explains what it means by saying, it descends in judgment on Edom. The NIV puts it this way, my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. The people I have totally destroyed. So God speaks of His sword being bathed in the heaven, meaning the nation Edom, not the literal heavens. Edom has been rolled up like a scroll. Let's look at one other use of this language in the Tanakh, in the book of Nahum. The oracle concerning Nineveh. Now here we got another city that He's dealing with. Okay, It's the oracle, it's the judgment of Nineveh. The book of the visions of Nahum the Yahweh, is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger, great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. The way is a whirlwind and storm. The clouds are dust of the feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before Him, the world and all who dwells in it. So the subject here again is the judgment of Nineveh, not the physical world, but it sounds like the whole world's being destroyed. This is the way the Bible describes the fall of a nation. If this language describes the judgment of God on nations, then why when we get to the New Testament and you see the same exact language used, does it all now mean the whole earth? It's only because we don't understand how the Bible uses apocalyptic language that we do that. If the destruction of heaven and earth were to be taken literally in all these passages, you'd have it destroyed a whole bunch of times. All right? We saw four destructions of the whole earth. All right? That's kind of hard to do. All right, This language is clearly not literal. It's figurative and apocalyptic. John Brown, in 1853, said this, Heaven and earth passing, understood literally, is the dissolution of the present system of the universe, and the period when that is to to take place is called the end of the world. Now watch what he says, But a person at all familiar with the phraseology of the Old Testament Scriptures knows that the dissolution of the Mosaic economy... And the establishment of the Christian is often spoken of as the removing of the old earth and heavens and the creation of the new earth and the new heavens. It appears then that the Scripture, being the best interpreter of Scripture, yes, it sure is, we have in the Old Testament a key to the interpretation of the prophecies of the new. Yeah, I know. This is basic stuff, people. Everybody's missing this. Okay? Okay? We're we're making new meanings for the language of the New Testament instead of going back. The same symbolism is found in both, and the imagery of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the other prophets helps us to understand the imagery of St. Matthew, St. Peter, and St. John. The dissolution of the material world is not necessary to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Neither is it necessary to accomplish the predictions Of the New Testament. Now, again, this is stuff that people understand when you understand the language of Scripture. But people who write movies and write books don't care about that. They want to be sensational, they want to be fear mongers or whatever, so they say, well, this is talking about our whole earth collapsing. All right, now let's go back to our text in Hebrews, which is a word for word quotation from Psalm 102. If all we had was the prophecy of David in Psalm 102, we might think that this is referring to the physical earth. But the New Testament gives us insight and illumination into the Tanakh. Now the writer of Hebrews tells us that the fulfillment of these verses is related to the establishment of the eternal kingdom of Christ. So he lays this out, but let's back up a little bit. Verse 8 and 9. He says, but the son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, your throne is going to last forever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The heavens and the earth, old covenant Israel, are going to perish, He says. But Christ and His throne are going to remain forever and ever. The superiority of Christ over angels is shown that He created the world, but they were just ministering spirits. Of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Let's go on to chapter 2. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away for it. For since the message declared by angels For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So verse 2 speaks of the Sinaitic covenant in which was given by angels and compares to the new covenant salvation that Christ brings. In verse 5 he says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The world to come would not be in subjection to angels. In contrast to the world that then was, which was about to pass away. Now, how is the world or the heavens and earth of old going to perish? Well, David said in Psalm 102.26, they shall all wear out like a garment, and they would be changed. Now, here's what's interesting. That's the words from the Psalms. That's what he quotes in chapter 1 here. Is it just a coincidence that the Bible speaks of the passing away of the Old Covenant using the exact same language. Now, so it's not talking about the end of the world. Again, we've tried to demonstrate that he's talking about a covenant passing away and he uses the same language. Just look at that. He says, they will perish, you remain, they will wear out like a garment. That's from Hebrews 1. All right, This is talking about the heavens and the earth. Look at Hebrews 8.13. Speaking of a new covenant, now you know what he's talking about here, new covenant, he makes the first one, which that? That's the old covenant, obsolete. First covenant is becoming obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now the same Greek word, pleiao, which means to make worn out or declare obsolete, is used in both of these. It's used... In Hebrews 1.11, wear out. And it's used in Hebrews 8.13, becoming obsolete. The writer here says that the old covenant is about to pass away. And he makes it clear in chapter 8 here what he's talking about. He's talking about a covenant, not the physical heavens and physical earth. The new covenant, the first covenant. It's gonna be it's becoming obsolete. And not many years later. It became obsolete when Jerusalem was destroyed. It was done. Now this prophecy was fulfilled when the new covenant replaced the old covenant. At that time, the former heavens and the former earth was replaced by the new temple and the new earth. See, that old covenant temple was destroyed and God created a new temple. What's that new temple? The church. The body of Christ. We are... The temple of God. It's been replaced. These old covenant types and shadows were replaced by the new temple. And the new temple, guess what happens in the temple? God dwells there. That's what the church, the body of Christ is. It's the dwelling place of God, which is synonymous with the new Jerusalem, which is the new covenant, which is the church. So the writer of Hebrews is not talking in this text about the end of the world He's talking about the end of Old Covenant Israel. And since he's quoting Psalm 102, guess what? That's exactly what David was talking about in Psalm 102. The Old Covenant that was mediated by angels was about to come to an end. And Christ, who is greater than angels, His kingdom is going to endure forever. Thus, Christ is superior to angels. Now, angels have no context in the creation of the world, so it just doesn't fit in the context at all. But they were were part of, they mediated the Old Covenant. Let's look at these last two verses that I think strengthen the case here. Verse 13 says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is a quote from Psalm 110, which is the most frequently referred to promise from the Tanakh to appear in the New Testament. This highlights the final victory of the Son over His enemies. He says He's going to make His enemies a footstool. This is a phrase that describes an oriental military practice. A victorious king would place his feet on the neck of the defeated king. Now, who are these enemies that Christ has made His footstool? Hopefully, in our study of the Gospel of John, you picked up who the enemies are of Christ over and over and over. It's Old Covenant Judaism. Alright? They were Christ's enemy. And Christ calls Judaism in Revelation... The synagogue of Satan. Look at this. Revelation 3, nine. Behold, I make those of the synagogue of Satan. Now watch. Who say they are Jews but are not. They lie. Why do they lie? Who's going to say they're a Jew but is not? Who would do that? Old Covenant Jews would say we're Jews, but he'd say no you're not because a true Jew is one who worshiped Christ. All right? And they were rejecting Christ, so they're not a Jew anymore. All right, They say they're Jews, but they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. These Jews are the ones who persecuted and tried to wipe out Christianity. They were Christ's enemies. The last enemy, he says, to be destroyed is death. And the Old Covenant was a ministration of death. So when the Old Covenant was abolished, so was death. Because the Old Covenant was associated with angels, its destruction by Christ meant, again, He's superior to angels. Now the writer of Hebrews concludes this section on Christ superior over angels by saying this in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This again shows the utter subordinate relationship between angels to the Redeemer. He is sovereign, they're servants. This is used kind of to clench his whole argument in chapter 1 here. Now in this verse, we have another time indicator showing that the Old Covenant was about to end and the New Covenant was about to be consummated. Where you see it? you see the time indicator there? Okay, who are about to? Again, let's pull up Young's here. Are they not all spirits of service for ministration, being sent forth because of those about to inherit salvation? The words in the ESV, who are to, are from mellow, means in an infinitive to be about to, according to Thayer, Gingrich, all the lexicons, all right? Those who are about to inherit salvation. Now, what does that mean, about to inherit salvation? This is written about AD 65. The gospel's been being preached for 35 years, and they're about to inherit salvation? I mean, What do you mean? They didn't have salvation yet? This 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust was a time of transition. The Old Covenant was fading. The New Covenant was strengthening until A.D. 70. Then the Old Covenant was put to an end. The New Covenant came to full consummation. Until A.D. 70, nobody had salvation. They didn't have it in its full form. Mark 10.30 says this, Yeshua prophesied, He says, in the age to come, eternal life. Look that up in a commentary. <laughs> Look it up. You know what they'll do? They'll skip it for the most part. You know, and people who are honest will go, I don't know what in the world this means, because He's saying that you don't get eternal life to the age to come. Now, most people would say we're still in the, this age of the Bible. The age to come hasn't come yet, so we don't have eternal life then. Eternal life is the blessing of the new covenant age and it came when the old covenant was put away. We can see here that salvation is tied directly to eschatology. If Christ hasn't come, if the age hasn't ended, then we, we don't have salvation yet. Look what the writer of Hebrews says in 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. All right, He's going to appear a second time. This is the second coming. Not not to deal with sin, because He already dealt with sin. He dealt with sin on the cross. He's coming to save those who are waiting for Him. So in both these verses, we see that salvation is directly tied to the second coming of Christ. The ones who are about to inherit salvation then, at the time of the writing of Hebrews, would be inheriting salvation at the time of Christ's second coming at the fall of Jerusalem. Salvation was not a completed event in the lives of the first century believers. It was their hope. They looked forward to its soon arrival. Peter also states that their salvation was not yet complete when he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's ready to be revealed. See, the transition saints had in pledge, but we have now. They had a guarantee of what was to come. We have it in fulfillment. In the old covenant, which was mediated by angels, they had the hope of eternal life. The hope of salvation. But in the new covenant age, which was consummated in 8070, 70, we have eternal life salvation now. And the writer's point is Christ is superior to angels. That's what he's trying to tell us. He is superior to the angels. And that's the whole context of chapter one. And when we understand that, we can't make the heaven and earth there be a literal heaven and earth because the angels had nothing to do with the literal heaven and earth. They did have to do with the creation. They mediated the law of God at Sinai. So they were involved there. But he's saying Christ is superior? That, that perishing of heaven and earth, talked about by David in the psalm, talked about by the writer, was the perishing of all. Covenant Israel. It's really not that hard if you just pay attention to the language. You know, all you got to do is look up heaven and earth and trace it. Sometimes it's talking about the literal creation of heaven and earth, other times it's not, and you have to get in the context and find out what it's talking about. But the writer of Hebrews says here in his argument Christ is far superior to angels because his, the covenant he's bringing in, is forever and never. That's the thing, people. We are in the New Covenant. And the New Covenant, the Bible says, is an everlasting covenant. So, if you're in an everlasting covenant, would it have last days? Would it have end times? How could you have end times for something that doesn't end? How can you have last days for something that doesn't end? The last days were the last days of the Old Covenant. Because it was about to end. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Father, I thank You for the theme of the book of Hebrews, that Christ is superior. The new covenant, Lord, is so far superior to the old. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the teaching of the Word of God. Father, I pray that we as Bereans would not accept what I'm saying, wouldn't reject what I'm saying, but would study what I'm saying. That we would dig this out, that we would search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Lord, thank You for Your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions or comments on what we talked about today. Jeff? Um, for those people out there that think that heaven and earth would apply to creation of Israel in Genesis, why they won't. Besides the fact that heaven wasn't Genesis, so <laughs> but I won't give you that. There there's people who believe that it always means that, so therefore, okay. right. Uh there are there are people who believe that the Genesis one account is talking about the creation of Israel. All right. That's, you know, the heavens and earth. They use that language throughout. Um, and I don't, I don't buy that, you know, because I don't believe that Israel was created until Genesis 12. You know, God created Adam. Adam, he had a people. He dealt with the nations. They were all his people. And he, until they continually, continually rejected him until the Tower of Babel. And he said, I'm done with you. I'm finished with you. He, he, and then he started a new people. And that new people was Abraham. And Israel, he started all over. He, he put 70 gods over the 70 nations and he took Israel. He was Israel's God. You see that all through the Scripture. The Lord, Yahweh, Israel's God. Because the nations had their own gods. And he says that in Deuteronomy 4.29. He says, you're not to worship the sun, moon, and stars. That belongs to the nations. Those gods are for the nations to worship. You're to worship me. And so I, I, I think Genesis is not talking about you know, we get that developed later. I think there's a literal and then there's a spiritual, you know. And uh, now, whether Genesis 1 is talking about the literal creation of the heavens and earth, I don't know. All right? I know this over and over through the scriptures, God claims to have created the physical universe. All right? He created what's there. There's no doubt about that. But every time it's heaven and earth talked about, it's not referring to that, just like a lot of other things in the scripture you got to do a little bit of homework. Right. First, that's, that's 1 Corinthians 15 says, first the natural and then the spiritual. So you have the natural and the spiritual comes after that. Stan? Uh, maybe I'm a little confused or a lot confused. The last I like, point you made full salvation was it until AD 70. Yeah. Unless I'm using salvation wrong, I mean, they died and then where did they go? Okay. That's a good question, Stan, and I understand the confusion there. Because as you're reading the New Testament, they talk about salvation like they have it, right? But they also talk about it being a hope. Same thing with righteousness. They talk about righteousness as having it. They talk about righteousness as a hope. You don't hope for what you have. You hope for what you don't have, okay? Because in that transition period, that 40 years, they had it as a hope. It was not consummated. And that's why Mark, he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. You get eternal life in the age to come. It wasn't, eternal life wasn't something in the old age, in the old covenant age. But it was coming in. It was beginning. And that's why in the Gospels, you know, Christ is preaching the Gospel. People are believing on them. all right, And they are being given eternal life. But until AD 70, that life was not final. So if someone in that transition period died... They didn't go to heaven. Okay? They waited with the Old Covenant saints until the resurrection when they were taken into the presence of God. Uh, maybe that's where Roman Catholics get purgatory. Well, yeah, I guess it could be. They, you know, I'm not sure there's a lot of scripture to back that up. <laughs> to what? Paul was dealing with that heresy also, where they were saying that all these things had been fulfilled in the Old Covenant. Right. And that's why you know he he condemns you know Himeneus and Pilateus you know he condemns them because they were preaching the resurrection is already past. And people accuse me of that. Oh you're 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 preaching the resurrection was past too and I'm like, yeah, well it is past. It wasn't when they did it. You know? And so why was that so terrible that they were preaching that? Because they're preaching the resurrection happened but the temple was still standing. The old covenant was still in effect and that didn't work out. That, that resurrection didn't happen until that system was shut down. And see, people don't understand the coming of Christ was a coming in judgment. He came on the clouds. You read Isaiah 19 God, Yahweh, comes on the clouds in judgment to destroy a people. Christ's coming was very visible in that He wiped out Jerusalem, closed down the temple. They've never sacrificed since. That system's over. And God was making it very clear. I'm done with this. We're moving on to the new. And in the new, salvation is full and free. And now when someone trusts Christ, they have eternal life at that moment. If they die, they go to be with the Lord. That transition period is very crucial to understand. And and most Christian teachers today, when they read about this age and the age to come, they think we're still in this age. Which means salvation has not come yet. Which means the Lord hasn't come. Which means judgment, the resurrection, none of that stuff's happened yet. Which means the last days are longer than the whole time of the old covenant. All right, to say the old covenant lasted for 1600 years and then you have the last days that last for 2,000 years, the last days last longer than the whole thing did. You know, it's just, it's kind of nonsense. But again, Claire. In the Lord's prayer, the Lord told us to pray. You know, "Thy kingdom come." That be done. When we say that, shouldn't we say "Thy kingdom come"? Well, that's a good point, Claire. Okay. You see, you said the Lord taught us to pray that. He didn't, right? He didn't teach us to pray that because we weren't there. But he taught his disciples, "This is how you pray." Okay. Yes, we're in a different time area, okay? So we're not praying that kingdom come. His kingdom has arrived, all right? (laughs) Yeah. We pray for the spread of the kingdom, not the coming of the kingdom. But that's, see, and that's, that is a crucial distinction that we need to learn to make. This book is not written to us. There's no chapter in here, there's no book in here written to the Bereans at the Berean Bible Church, Chesapeake. Virginia Beach, Virginia. All right. It's just not in there. Huh? Or America. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's written to, oh, the Galatians. Anybody here Galatian? Oh, to the Ephesians. Anybody here in Ephesians? How about a Philippian? Oh. No, but see, listen, it's written to them, it's written for us. But until you understand what it meant to them, you can't say it means this to me. Because it had to mean what it meant to the original audience. It meant something to them. That's why when you're reading, you have to understand, this is who's he talking to? How does this fit with, what, you know, with, with us here now? And, and you know, Paul told Timothy, all Scripture, old and new. When he wrote that, grapha, he's referring to the old at that time. All Scripture. But Peter says the stuff Paul wrote was Scripture. So all Scripture is old and new. All right. All Scripture is given by inspiration to God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly complete for all good works. So the Scriptures teach us so much there for us, but they're not to us. Some people go crazy over that, you know. But you have to understand that distinction. It's not written to you. There's no. There's nothing in there. Some people. Say, it's all written to me. I said, well, the Bible says you got to march around Jerusalem for seven days. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, it's obvious at some point, you know, well, that's not to us.